Yale University. This is To Live and Dialogue in LA. I'm Aaron Tracy. On the pod today, Donald Margulies. That's Margulies, like Hercules, he tells me. Wait, I think I screwed it up. Margulies. I'm in my own head now, forget it. Um, On the podcast, we've had a couple Oscar-winning writers, a bunch of Emmy winners, but Donald is our first Pulitzer Prize winner for drama, which is a pretty serious damn award. They only give out one a year, Sometimes they even skip a year if there's nothing worthy. And it's been won by some of the greatest dramatic writers ever. Eugene O'Neill, Arthur Miller, Tennessee Williams, Edward Albee, Sam Shepard, David Mamet, August Wilson have all won, and Donald Margulies. My dad and I went to a bunch of Donald's plays on and off Broadway when I was a kid, so I was really excited to meet him. A producer on my new FBI pilot at Lionsgate, who's become a friend, David Cantor, has been Donald's manager for decades. So Cantor introduced us, and uh, Donald and I ended up having a really fun, boozy three-and-a-half-hour dinner in New Haven a few weeks ago. I had a million questions for him. And as you're about to hear, Donald is a brilliant, generous talker with a lot of great stories. And if you haven't seen him, I highly recommend reading some of his collected plays, like Sight Unseen, Loman Family Picnic, Dinner with Friends, among many others. A couple years ago, Donald wrote the David Foster Wallace movie, End of the Tour, starring Jason Segel and Jesse Eisenberg, one of the rare, great movies about writers and writing. There's sort of a rule in Hollywood that you can't write a movie where the protagonist is a writer. They're too internal, their craft isn't active enough, stakes are too low. To me, you know, adaptation, Shakespeare in Love, Capote, Heartburn, they all kind of prove that rule wrong. Let me know if you can think of others, by the way. But I'm excited to talk to our first and maybe only guest who's a playwright before all else. Speaking of which, I just went to see Rebecca Miller's new documentary about her father, Arthur Miller, which I loved. She used clips from all these home movies she made over the years with her dad, so it feels really intimate and unguarded. Death of a Salesman is one of the first plays that just destroyed me, so it's a trip to see footage of where Arthur wrote the play, hear him talk about it, along with all of his biggies. It's also a really good documentary for writers, because Miller lets us into his creative process a little, which of course is what we're trying to do in this podcast. You know, maybe Arthur Miller's most famous line is, the best work that anybody ever writes is the work that is on the verge of embarrassing him. Always. I think a lot of times writers in TV and film don't think that that applies to them. You know, how do I write something that's going to embarrass me if I'm writing a cop lawyer doctor show? Seeing this documentary about Miller was maybe the first time I realized that it is still possible. Just because you're not writing about your troubled relationship with your older brother or your stormy marriage to Marilyn Monroe doesn't mean the work can't still be vulnerable and embarrassing. You know, I'm writing a pilot now about a basketball player, and I've been having trouble with it. But after seeing that Miller doc, I went back to my outline and made the show much more about my struggles in the beginning of my writing career. All the sort of embarrassing, vulnerable stuff I could think of. So on the surface, my show is about an NBA prospect, but his emotional journey is now my emotional journey through a different competitive field. So we'll see if it works, but it's been a hell of a lot more fun to write. All right, let's talk to New Haven's own Pulitzer Prize winning dramatist, Donald Margulies.
By the way, thanks to our friends at ScreenCraft, who are spreading the word about this week's episode. Check out ScreenCraft.org for top screenplay competitions, educational events, and more. Making theater is still my primary passion. Because um, you have done a lot of TV and features now. And... You know, I've, I've written a lot of screenplays that have not been produced. Um, but I've, I've been a writer for hire for something like 26 unproduced screenplays. That's a lot of unproduced screenplays. That's a lot of plays that I didn't write, but it's also it, it's what enabled me to write plays right. because it you know I, I began to see writing assignments in, as in film and television as playwriting grants. I'm I'm so fascinated by this because um, you know you've written so many extraordinary plays. You've won the Pulitzer for drama. Um, there are 26 scripts by you out there that literally only executives and networks have seen. Right. Um, you know, this is something I think about all the time because I'm trying hard to be okay with a career where I get paid to write stuff even though with every single project, the overwhelming likelihood is that no one will ever see it. Um, so have you found peace with that? Uh, yeah. <laughs> you uh, like getting paid? You like well, coming up with it? You like the practice of it? You know, I, I do enjoy writing screenplays. Um, and I've been very fortunate because the projects that have come my way are things that I really wanted to to be involved with. That either it was subject matter that interested me and I thought I would really enjoy the research um, or it was an adaptation that I was very excited to immerse myself in. Um, so and I, there were only a couple of those 26 unproduced screenplays that were ones that I – assignments that I took because I needed to financially – and uh, and those were those were I think the few genre pieces that I wrote. I wrote a I rewrote a thriller, you know, a psychological thriller. I did a, a crime procedural. These are not things that that felt at all authentic to me, but I thought, well, you know, I've never written a psychological thriller before, uh, and I've never written a crime procedural before. Uh, I don't think I ever delved into either of those genres again, but at least I did it. When you did that, did you go back and watch all your favorite old crime thrillers? What would be your process? Um, yeah, when I remember when I was working on this this purgatory uh, psychological thriller, um, I, I looked at a lot of horror films and a lot of, uh, you know, sort of mindfuck movies mm -hmm. And uh, it's sort of in the Rod Serling tradition where it usually ends with a, they're not really dead or right. they are really dead right. or uh, those kinds of things. Uh -huh. And, uh, yeah, I remember I, I was very fond of um, Jacob's Ladder. Oh, yeah, the Tim Robbins movie. Yes, yeah. that uh, Bruce Joel, uh, I, I forget know. his name. Uh -huh. um, it's been years, yeah. Yeah, but uh, I, th I thought that was a really smart Smart psychological thriller. Yeah. Man, I would like to read your psychological thrillers. It's so funny that they're just all, I mean. They're in my, on my shelf. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, because so many people flock to so many of your you know, your plays and, you know, they they read your collected plays. And here are 26, you know, fresh original scripts that just HBO executives read and your manager, David Cantor, read. And lots of people read, but no one will ever get to say. It's a no. funny thing. No. Well, you know, and, and in, uh, you know, in the world of screenwriting, um, unlike theater, uh, the writer relinquishes his copyright. Right. So I have no recourse but right. to admire the stack of unproduced manuscripts. Right. 
and you know the only the only project that reverted to me was my adaptation of Sight Unseen, of my play Sight Unseen, mm-hmm. which I wrote for HBO in the 90s. And uh, because I owned the underlying rights, it reverted to me. So mm-hmm. I, I actually own that script. And is that sort of, um, you, you're protective of it because you don't want anyone else to do it, or you actually you have plans to try to take it out again? I did have plans to take it out again, and I tried, um, yeah. but uh, I didn't succeed. Yeah. Uh, that that ship may have sailed. I'm trying to think of what uh, of which of your plays have been adapted for TV. Dinner with Friends, of course. Yes. Uh, collected stories. Collected stories was was uh, uh, videotaped for um, uh, PBS. Oh, they just they taped a performance of it. Well, it was on a soundstage, but it was very uh, Gil Cates directed it. He had also directed that production on stage with Linda Lavin and Samantha Mathis. Oh, cool. And uh, it was a it was very much stage bound. Yeah. Uh, but it's also a one set play, right. so uh, whatever efforts were made to open it up were kind of cheesily handled. Right. Okay. Um, so I asked you if there was a scene you could think of from any movie or TV show ever not written by you that you'd <laughs> want to discuss in terms of craft. Uh, so you picked a scene from Broadcast News, the 1987 James L. Brooks movie, which makes me very, very happy because there's very little in the world I'd ever rather be doing than discussing Broadcast News. Um, we're going to listen to the scene. Great. It's latish in the movie. Um, just to set it up very quickly, Albert Brooks, uh, who plays a brilliant but nebbishy TV news reporter, has blown his big audition to become a news anchor. Holly Hunter, who plays his producer and best friend, comes to his house to console him about his blown audition. She's come straight from a date with Tom, played by William Hurt, who's also a reporter trying to be an anchor. But Tom represents everything Albert Brooks's character is not. Tom is handsome, waspy, vapid, and possibly morally and ethically bankrupt. So we're going to hear Albert Brooks first talking about the William Hurt character, Tom, followed by Holly Hunter responding. Uh, let's play the scene. I've never seen you like this with anybody so don't get me wrong when i tell you that tom while being a very nice guy is the devil this isn't friendship you're crazy you know that what do you think the devil's gonna look like if he's around god come on no one's gonna be taken in by a guy with a long red pointy tail come on what's he gonna sound like (sighs) no i'm semi-serious here you're serious. He will be attractive. He'll be nice and helpful. He'll get a job where he influences a great God-fearing nation. He'll never do an evil thing. He'll never deliberately hurt a living thing. He'll just bit by little bit lower our standards where they're important. Just a tiny little bit. Just coax along, flash over substance. Just a tiny little bit. And he'll talk about all of us really being salesmen. And he'll get all the great women. Hey, Aaron! I think you're the devil! You know I'm not! How? Because I think we have the kind of friendship where if I were the devil, you'd be the only one I would tell. Well, you were awfully quick to run after Tom's help. Which all right, you fine! Want help? Yes! And if things had gone well for me tonight, then I probably wouldn't be saying any of this. I grant you everything. But give me this. He personifies everything that you've been fighting against. And I'm in love with you. How do you like that? 
I buried the lead. So oh, good. It's exquisite. <laughs> That's so good. It's perfection. Oh, man. I mean, it's it's a love scene, right? He's declaring his love yeah. for her, but it's also about integrity and principles and what he thinks about is right and wrong in the world. Oh, but what's so exciting to hear that again um, is the, you know, I, I, I teach playwriting and I'm constantly talking about subtext and that fabulous speech, which is totally in character and in context, is all about subtext. It's all about his declaration of love for her. But what Brooks is able to do there is through his characters is to express essentially the theme of, of broadcast news, which is really about values ultimately. And it's, it's gorgeous stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, the language, the musicality of the language, I grant you everything, but give me this. It's, it's just so beautifully written. Well, and it's so perfectly in character. Uh-huh. There's, there's nothing right. writerly about it because right. Aaron, uh, what's his name? His, his name's Aaron. His yeah. name is Aaron. Yeah. yeah I thought I, I was having I a, an episode. Yeah. But yes, uh, he, he speaks that way uh-huh. and it, it, it makes perfect character sense for him to be expressing himself this right. way. And especially at that moment, I mean, this is a man on the worst day of his life. Right. Right. And possibly the worst moment of his life. I mean, all his hopes and dreams have just gone up in smoke. Um, which gives him the courage maybe to finally declare his love for this woman who's been his best friend forever and who we as the audience can see as his soulmate if only she could see it. That's right. Oh. Oh, I know. <laughs> it's, just, it, it, it's just, it's exquisite. Um, so James L. Brooks wrote it, of course. Um, are you a fan of James L. Brooks? Well, I was certainly a fan of the Mary Tyler Moore show when uh-huh. I was growing up. And um, I got to meet James L. Brooks really? once, and that was very exciting. Tell me. Yeah. I'm so no, curious. I got to meet him. Is he amazing? In per- Does he talk like this in person? Does he say things he like, very, uh, I grant you everything? He was very warm and charming. Uh-huh. And uh, Was it about a project? Or? It was about a project. I'm trying to remember what it was. Because he, I mean, yeah. he had a big career in TV. Yeah. He you know, ran Mary Tyler Moore, and then he really right. sort of um, kicked off Taxi. Um, a bunch of those shows of that era, right? Um, Lou right. Grant, you know the the guys from che- the guys who created Cheers were writers on Taxi, you know. So he's really responsible for a lot of the great shows of That's the late seventies, right. early eighties. That's right. But but nothing he he did in film really, I think, uh, matched the the um, really the perfection of broadcast news. Yeah. Um, and, the, you know, the movie it feels like Terms of Endearment gets talked about a lot, which he also mm-hmm. wrote and directed, maybe because it won Best Picture. Um, it doesn't feel to me, maybe you feel mm-hmm. differently, that broadcast news is talked about very much. Do you think your students, for instance, have ever seen broadcast news? I know they didn't. Right. <laughs> uh, um, the, they hadn't until I urged several of them to, to get together and see it. And then they, Professor, we, we watch broadcast news. <laughs> it's like great. It? Yeah, yeah, but it's um, – it is not uh, commonly known, you know, but I think it's, you know, it's certainly up there with It Happened One Night or, you know, among the great romantic comedies. Yeah. Um, I, I think it will, I think it will endure. It's it's too good. And it's, you know, it, it captures the late 80s in such an extraordinary way through character totally. and through media. You know, it, it really, it, it really just encapsulates that moment in Reagan era America. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, I'm just thinking about this for the first time, but I love those movies, the late 80s. And it feels like some of those, you know, like this have a very strong moral sense. You know, Wall Street is sort of like a morality play. Right, that's right. Um, Working Girl, you know, the Mike Nichols Mm -hmm. movie to an extent. And those those all came out in the same year, two year period. That's right. Um, Today, obviously, we don't get that anymore in movies. We get it on television. Yeah, we do get it on television. Uh, But we don't get it in the movies. Yeah. It's interesting. James Elbrook started in TV, then went and did this in movies, and now we're getting finally to do on television what 
right? He did in the movies. Um, there's also, have you watched the, um, the DVD extras of the movie? Because there's an alternate final scene. You know, I'm trying to, have I ever seen that? I got pretty obsessed with it once upon a time. You know, he he didn't have an ending for the movie as he was making the movie. Um, you know, it's it's sort of, it's very much a, a love story, a, you know, triangle between these three people. Right. But it's also, of course, about the the job of, of being a news reporter. And so he didn't know who he wanted to pair off, who would end up with who. And the ending, you know, for those who ha- haven't seen it, it's it's not your Hollywood happy ending. Right. right? It's, exactly. Yeah, it's not. Yeah. You would hope that after this scene, the, the lovable, brilliant, nebushy news reporter gets the girl. But... Yeah, and that's not what happens. Um, but there are a couple alternates that are really, really interesting. I recommend looking at. I'll, I'll look for that. Yeah. Um, so I want to ask also, you know, from a from a distance, mm-hmm. um, and you know, I'd like you to either dispel me of this notion or maybe confirm it. You seem to have the ideal life of a writer. Um, <laughs> for listeners who don't know, or you know, he's already said Donald teaches here at Yale. You get to be three thousand miles from Hollywood which is fantastic. Uh, you uh, teach incredibly smart, passionate students. You get to eat the best pizza in the world, New Haven, not pizza, whatever you want. You still get your plays produced. You write interesting TV and film. Does it feel that way from the inside? Hell no. Are you kidding? It's, it, it tickles me to hear you say it that way. Right? I mean, all that is true. Everything I just said is true. No, I still eat my kishkas out. It, 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 never, it never, never changes. Uh, if anything, no, it, it look, my wife and I have had a wonderful life in New Haven for a very long time now, uh, and uh, I'm I'm I've been very productive here. It's been a good place to work and teach, and as you said, the students are sublime. They're, I've I've been so privileged to teach now a generation. I've been here for twenty six years. Yeah, um, and it's it's thrilling. And a lot of your students have gone on to big careers in Hollywood. They, many of them, yeah. many of them are on, you know, running shows, writing shows, um, still getting plays produced. Mm-hmm. Uh, the director of my movie, The End of the Tour, James Ponsalt, was my student about uh, 17 years ago. That's incredible. Yeah. Can you can you tell can you tell us how that sort of came about? The End of the Tour? Uh-huh. Uh, the the well, the end of the tour uh, happened when my manager, uh, David Cantor, mm-hmm. sent me uh, an email inquiring about my interest in David Foster Wallace because a, a book by David Lipsky was making the rounds called, called of, although, of course, you end up becoming yourself. Wow. Cantor found that for you. It was submitted that. to him. Yeah. At Anonymous. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I remember responding that I, I had read some David Foster Wallace, but I wasn't by any means a fanboy. Um, and I certainly was aware of the tragedy of David Foster Wallace. Um, but uh, Cantor sent me the book, and I immediately... No, actually, when Cantor sent it to me, he sent it with a message that said, take a look at this, there might be a play in it. Hmm. Because the book is virtually a transcript of a four-day conversation. And I started reading it, and I, I remember being very excited and saying, this is not a play. This is a road picture. And, um, and David got on board very quickly, and it took us a little, a little bit of misadventure to, to drum up some money to option the Lipsky book and to get me my nominal fee as a screenwriter. And um, when we did secure some funds, uh, I wrote it very quickly, 
And it was around that time that I had reconnected with my former student, James Ponsolt, because I had just seen his film Smashed. And I wrote to him and told him how, how much I enjoyed it and how proud I was of him and what a smart movie it was. And it was around that time that I had a draft of what became the end of the tour. And we were beginning to, to draw up lists of directors. And, um, and I said to, to David Cantor and Matt DeRoss, I said, you know, there, there's this young director. He's on the rise. He's a former student. I know him. He's incredibly smart. I think he'd really respond to this. Can we send it to him? And we did. And Ponsult responded the next day. And this it was a dream for him. I mean, well, I, I, I guess it was. It was certainly a dream for me, P- particularly the, the fact that this came together in such an extraordinary way. It's it's so incredibly rare. I mean, first of all, movies about literary figures uh, are not common. No, and it's hard to write about writers, right? I mean, that's sort of a cliche at this point. But the, what is the idea that they're not active enough? Well, I you know I it, I mean the, what what interested me about the Lipsky book is that it's 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 all about writers talking about writing. Uh, uh, my collaborators on this, of course, were David Foster Wallace and David Lipsky, two incredibly smart, articulate, funny guys. So I had help. Right. But what I was able to do was craft a narrative out of this amorphous, you know, five-day conversation. Um, and, uh, and that was kind of thrilling. Completely. Um, so I was going to hold this for a little bit later, but since we're talking about it, um, I want to play a scene from the end of the tour. Um, it's the scene, you know, you suggested. I'm happy to set it up or, or you can. No, no why, why don't you? Um, so... For those who haven't seen the movie, um, you know, famous author David Foster Wallace, who's played by Jason Siegel, is being interviewed by um, a writer who's had much less success than he has. I guess it's fair to say David Glipsky, played by Jesse Eisenberg. And this is about 45 minutes from the end of the movie. Wallace and Lipsky have spent a lot of time together at this point. They're getting on each other's nerves. Other issues are boiling up between them. Specifically, David Glipsky is trying to figure out whether or not David Foster Wallace has adopted a kind of persona during these interviews that he's been doing rather than being his true self. Um, So let's play the clip and then we'll talk about it. I got to say, there's something basically false about your approach here. What do you mean false? Yeah, I think it's, uh, I think it's part of your whole social strategy. In what way? You still feel you're smarter than other people. Oh, really? Yeah, really? yeah, yeah. But you act okay. like you're in the, you know, kid's softball game, but holding back is power hitting to try to make it more competitive for the little ones, you know? When? Here. Now. The past three days. It's part of your social strategy. You're a tough room, you know that? It's so obvious the way you hold back your intelligence to be with people who are uh, younger than you or not as agile as you. Yeah, well, that would make me a real asshole, wouldn't it? No. I don't think writers are smarter than other people. I think they may be more compelling in their stupidity or in their confusion. But I think one of the real ways I have gotten smarter is I don't think I'm that much smarter than other people. (laughs) There are ways in which other people are a lot smarter than me. And I got to tell you, it makes me feel kind of lonely. What? There's been certain stuff I've told you that's been really true. I think it's been brave of me. No, no, no. Absolutely. I've written enough of these pieces to know. You can write this up a hundred different ways, right. 90 of which I'm going to come across as a monumental asshole. And now it seems to me like your read on this is, wow, what an interesting persona Dave is adopting for mm. the purposes no, no, of no. this interview. That's not what if I'm saying. If we had done this by the mail, 
if I had access to my library, if I could look stuff up. My dream for this would be for you to write it up, send it to me, and let me rewrite all my quotes, which right. of course you'll never do. <laughs> but if I'm in a room by myself, alone, and I have time, I can be really smart. <laughs> yes, I think I'm bright. I think I'm talented. I'm not trying to sound disingenuous oh, to no? you. I am not an idiot. Yes, I can talk intelligently with you about stuff, but I can't quite keep up with you. <laughs> okay, that is such bullshit. Oh, believe me, I am not doing some sort of like, aw shucks. I'm just in from the country. I'm not a real writer. I'm a regular guy thing. I'm not trying to lay some shit okay, on you. Okay, but you did it again, though. You flatter me, but you're just patronizing. I just think that to look across the room and to automatically assume that somebody's less aware or that their interior life is somehow less rich and complicated and acutely perceived as mine makes me not as good a writer. Why? Because it means I'm going to be performing for some faceless audience instead of trying to have a conversation with a person. If you think that's faux, you know, you think whatever you want. I got a real serious fear of being a certain way and a set, I think, of like real convictions about why I'm continuing to do this, why it's worthwhile, why it's not just an exercise and getting my dick sucked. Okay. This is such a clever tactic on your part. Tactic? What tactic? That's right. Get me a little pissed off, get me a little less guarded, I'm going to reveal more. Yes, it's true. I treasure my regular guyness. Mm -hmm. I've come to think that maybe it's my biggest asset as a writer, that I'm basically just like everybody else. You know what? I'm not doing any kind of faux thing with you, and I'm not going to say it again. Okay, but that faux thing, what you just said, is an example of the faux thing. You're not willing to risk giving the full you. I don't know if you're a very nice man or not. It's very clear you don't believe a word that I've said. All your protesting, you know, I'm just a regular guy. You don't crack open a thousand-page book because you heard the author is a regular guy. You do it because he's brilliant, because you want him to be brilliant. So who the fuck are you kidding? I don't have the brain cells left to play any kind of faux games with you. Mm, it's fine. Yeah. Yeah, it's fine. That's oh. such a good scene. Oh. They're, they're, so, they're so brilliant, they're those really. guys. Oh. Do you remember writing it? Yeah, I do remember <laughs> writing it. Was it a slog? Was it hard? Did it come right out? What? Well, you know, so much of what I did in the process of adapting that that book of Lipsky's was, it. You know, I should I should say parenthetically that, that in my my previous life I I was a, an art student, and I uh, am a collagist still, and that the the uh, for me the process of adapting. Particularly the Lip, the Lipsky book is a is a kind of collage making where you take the raw material, the found material, and you you shatter it and you take these pieces of it and you create new juxtapositions, um, which I do with pieces of paper when I make collage. But in the case of adaptation, it became a matter of sort of putting together language that. You know, I mean, the the scene that you that we just heard is probably an amalgam of five different beats in the course of that long conversation that those guys had. That comes from Lipsky's book. That comes from Lipsky's so, book. So, a, a bunch of it you pulled from from actually from Lipsky's book, and um, I guess how did you how did you decide you know what to pull for for this particular scene? Well, I it it. it it was sort of the climactic scene of my third act. And as I was beginning to, to uh, cogitate about how to make this a dramatic story and not simply a chronicle, 
Um, I interviewed David Lipsky. Uh, I turned the tables on the interviewer. And, uh, and Lipsky was incredibly open and generous with me. And during, you know, one of the first conversations I had with Lipsky, I said, you guys spent all these days together and you never had a squabble? He said, oh, yeah, we did. I said, but it's not in the book. He said, that's right. And he told me what it was. And it's, it gave me my third act. <laughs> you know, I know it's, uh, it's, it was one of those eureka moments um, where I needed for there to be a sea change. Um, you know, that all of the subtext that had been boiling beneath the surface needed to come to the surface dramatically. And um, that's really where this pastiche of ideas and language came together. Right. This is your version of an action scene in a movie about Exactly. That's exactly what it is. <laughs> um, and it's, it's a pretty big accusation that Lipsky is leveling at David Foster Wallace in this scene. It is. That he's been false with him the whole time, that he's not been his true self. That's right. Yeah. Well, you know, in, in, in my license as a dramatist, um, I, I made it a more combative uh, encounter than it actually reads and, uh, you know, and part of that was really, um, uh, it, I think that what is expressed is true to the situation, even though it may not have been acted upon in, in real life. Um, so that Lipsky challenging him is, you know, more of what I have imposed on it as a dramatist. Right. Did you always have them having this out in a car? I mean, there's something about being trapped in a car. that. Well, so much of what unfolds in this road picture takes place in a car or in hotel rooms or in diners. Or um, It seemed that this conversation uh, needed to take place on the ride back to, to, to Wallace's house. Um, because it came after a period of no communication between them. There's a, there's a total break between them where uh, Wallace refuses to talk to him. And they, they fly home in silence. And then the scene that preceded this that we, we, we couldn't hear is a pretty silent sequence in which they're searching for a parked car right. and can't find it's a great scene too. the parked rental car. Um, Making the drama out of those mundane moments right. during a road trip, though, I mean, that's, that's so incredible. It's so well, but also putting that uh, event uh-huh. of not being able to find the car at that moment right. in the story was right. uh, a discovery that I made. Interesting. And I mean, I, needless to say, you could have done this anyway. You could, have, you could have started the fight in the car and then had them pull over to a Denny's and finished it over lunch. But... Um, I mean, do you remember what from the first draft to the last draft? Because oftentimes, you know, obviously screenplays morph and adapt and change. Was it always like this? It was always like this. It was always like this. Yeah. Um, the, the script got shorter and tighter. I had to lose certain uh, sequences because of cost, because of location problems. But by and large, what is on screen, was on the page. Yeah, it was very savvy of you to yeah. uh, pick a former student to be the director. <laughs> you know, I, I recommend it. <laughs> he, was so, he was so respectful of what was on the page. Yeah, I'm sure. It was, it You're was his teacher. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, Jason and Jesse, they, that's the way it's written. Were you their teachers? <laughs> <laughs> I hope spiritually. I Aaron Sorkin says that a writer who um, comes on set of a movie is like a hooker who stays for breakfast. <laughs> Just no role. Nobody yeah. wants the person there. No, it's um, true. It's true. But in this case was different. I, I, I actually spent very little time on the set. 
Okay. Uh, a couple of days. Uh, and was that your choice? You had other responsibilities? I had other responsibilities. Um, uh, it was it was a winter of a polar vortex. I wasn't that eager to to uh, go out uh, and and freeze my Where was this off. Um, it was filmed in Michigan. Okay. So Michigan doubled for parts of Illinois and uh, Minnesota. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's so I only spent a couple of days there. Right. Um, and so, you know, as we've talked about, this is obviously based on uh, a true story, more or less. What responsibility do you think TV writers, playwrights, feature writers have to address the current awful political climate that we're living in right now? Wow. Um, you know, things are unfolding at such a breathless rate at this point that Attempts to be topical are almost a right. futile thing to do. As you and I are sitting here, we've gotten you know four New York Times alerts about the yeah. latest you know Mueller indictments. Exactly, um, you know. But I, in a way, I, I do think that um, the Trump era, the 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 rise of Trump, has certainly stimulated artists in in, in our culture uh, in a good way. You know, I do think that there, there is a, a a danger to preach to the choir. I think that there is, um, uh, you know, a, a danger to um, be facile in our uh, parody of what is unfolding at such a farcical rate. Um, so it's it's kind of hard. It's kind of hard to capture it. And right now, I'm I'm working on a miniseries about Andrew Jackson who people are suddenly, I think, awakening to because Jackson has basically been appropriated by Steve Bannon and uh, foisted onto an uncomprehending Donald Trump. Trump sees himself as the descendant of Andrew Jackson. He does. He he doesn't know his history, but yes, he has embraced the populist uh, uh, aspect of it anyway. Not not the Trail of Tears so much. Not the Trail of Tears so much. Not that he's aware of. Not the racism so much. but um, and so does that. Sorry to interrupt, but does yeah. your miniseries um, sort of uh, is it about Trump in many ways? I mean, well, if yeah, not I, on the surface, I, I, let's put, let me put it this way: I think that people will think a lot about our current situation. I don't know where we will be when this thing is ultimately shot and aired. Uh, I don't know where we'll be. We'll be in a you know the second term of a Pence administration. I don't know, um, but I do think that one of one of the um, pitfalls of taking on something like this is to avoid the facile um, uh, resonances. You know, I, I, I'm resisting those. Uh, you know, um, there were things said about Jackson uh, and his intellect and his rigor um, that certainly will make people think of our current president. Uh, but... And as you're writing it, are you not you're you're trying not to be explicit about it? I guess because I'm trying we don't know not we're... to be explicit about it. I think that it's it's there. It's not a direct parallel, but I do think that you know some of the rhetoric that's used uh, to describe him and his administration. Um, you know, of people talking about, well, this is the least intellectual cabinet we've ever seen. Things like that. Um, you're going to show him, actually. Well. But but what I'm saying is that those things were said in the 1820s. Oh, about Jackson. Yes, yeah. yes, yeah. Um, you know, but it's it's um, it's hard to write politically 
uh, because you have to consider who's your audience. Who are you doing this for? Um, you want to enlighten people, but you don't want to be pedantic. Right. Right. Arthur Miller always said, right, if you have, uh, if you have an idea, write an essay. If you have, uh, you know, an argument, write a play. Right. Exactly. Like I butchered that, but something like that. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, it makes me think of our, of a, what we talked about earlier about how the best dramatic writers once upon a time were writing plays and, you know, the Arthur Millers and the Tennessee Williams and the Thornton Wilders were very much writing about the current political climate. <laughs> but today, if our best dramatists um, are writing TV, because those television networks and studios are owned by conglomerates, they're often not writing about the current political climate, That's which true. feels like a real loss. That's true. But, you know, but something like The Handmaid's Tale, right. That's which, true. Yeah. you know, uh, which predicted our current climate in a sense. I mean, the book was written in the 70s. It was um, it, it was developed for television before. I mean, when Donald Trump was still looking like he was going to be a footnote <laughs> in our history. Right. right? Uh-huh. And suddenly it's it's chillingly uh, prescient. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a really good point. And some of these networks like Hulu um, are are making stuff that's about the times we're living in and, yeah. and taking advantage of that giant megaphone they have, um, much less so the, the broadcast networks and even most cable networks, unfortunately. Well, I think that's true. Yeah. Um, but maybe it'll change. I mean, the new American Horror Story, I actually haven't seen it yet. I haven't either. Yeah. A student who, who wrote a paper about it and said that it's, it's, it's explicitly about the election and about Trump and about living in this climate. Broad City, this comedy yes. social side. I, don't know yeah, I, do watch, I do watch Broad City. Yeah, an episode yeah. recently, the season yeah. was about the, yeah. you know, the I know. reaction to the Trump administration. I know, but who watches these shows? Liberals. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it's sort of a, it's a self-selecting audience. Right. It's preaching like to the choir. Right. Um, I don't think that people who were right-leaning or uh, are going to watch this and continue watching it. Right. Um, I think they'll resent being being preached to. Right. When you're writing something like the Andrew Jackson Project, do you expect to get notes from? Either maybe Cantor, but probably not Cantor. He's a great lefty. But maybe some of your studio execs or your network execs saying, "Look, this we need to appeal to people in Middle America, people of all political persuasions." Well, that hasn't happened yet, uh, and I don't. I don't really anticipate that happening. Um, uh, I don't think I fall victim to the agitprop uh, uh, impulse. Yeah. Um, because that is what that is what political. Uh, uh, drama yeah. can often appear to be. Uh, it's 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 hard to, you know. I I have a new play called Long Lost that uh, is a re- about a relationship between two adult brothers, and I I wrote it now almost two years ago, and then after the election, I wanted to revisit aspects of it because of the schism that was made so palpable by the election and that I saw a relationship between our sort of national crisis with this family crisis. Interesting. So, so you know, have rewritten it. I, yeah. I'm, I'm still in the process of doing that. But I wanted it to, I wanted to weave in uh, another layer that I think, frankly, makes it a bigger play. Interesting. But again, I was inspired by current events yeah. to do that. Yeah. Um, but not explicitly. The T word is not mentioned ever. Uh-huh. Uh, but it. But I do think that what this, what the election of 2016 did, was awaken people to the fracture that has 
been there all along. It's not Donald Trump's fault. Right. Symptom. Uh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, all right. Well, we've kept you a while here. Um, I just, I'm curious when you, uh, before we let you go, when you made the the leap uh, from playwriting into starting to write some TV mm-hmm. and movies. Do you remember what what was your first project you got paid for in TV and movies? Do you remember? Well, the the um, the first screenplay that I ever wrote. Why don't uh, we start there? Okay. Although I could go on for two hours. <laughs> I'm curious. But th- the first screenplay that I wrote was an adaptation of John Lars novel the autograph hound okay i don't know that uh, one. which was his first and possibly only novel um which was written in the 70s and um it had been optioned by jerry stiller and ann mira oh, cool. who i became friends with in in uh my writers group and they entrusted me with a, i had never written a screenplay before and they entrusted me with adapting the autograph hound you had done you had done several plays by then right some. Okay. Not a lot. But they were just trusting you. They knew you. They knew yeah, you writing from the group. Absolutely. Um, so The Autograph Hand was the, my first attempt at writing a screenplay. How'd it go? Uh, I thought it went pretty well. I don't know <laughs> what it would be like if I picked it up and read it this afternoon. I, I, I don't know if, how happy I would be. Did they make a stab at trying to get a made? They did. They did. And just like everything else. So yes, just like everything else. Yeah, but I awesome. wrote it for them. And that was really the first time that I wrote with talent in mind uh, it was a vehicle for ann and jerry oh interesting yeah. while well, ben was just a little kid running ben around. was a bar mitzvah boy uh-huh. around then yeah that's that's, that's when i first met the stillers and so were they i mean i'm curious were they like um mentors to you or when did you ever have mentors in tv and film that taught you how to do this new kind of writing um well, yes, so they were mentors. Um, again, you know, because we met each other in the context of the playwrights group, um, Ann and Jerry gave me my first opportunity in television, which was a program that they had on HBO, which then was a fledgling pay cable network. Yeah. Uh, they had a show, a monthly show called HBO Sneak Preview, which was basically an infomercial that Ann and Jerry hosted uh, that introduced, you know, next month on HBO, John Travolta, you know, that kind of thing. Huh. But interspersed in this half hour were clips, banter, and these little movie parodies that I wrote. No kidding. Yes. So that was my introduction to television. I did that. Uh, that I quit my day job as an art editor at Scholastic Magazines when I got that job. That's so interesting. So you would write parodies of the big movies of 1986, Top Gun and yeah, yeah. Breakfast Club. Yeah, they were little little parodies of some HBO-themed movie that was coming up the following month. That's so funny. For them, you know, for these two, you know, comic geniuses. How long did you do that for? Uh, two, two and a half years. Is that I right? Think. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was kind of amazing. And, and so you worked closely with them and felt like you could do this. I, I learned to write quickly. And uh, it was it was it was a great. I mean, and I loved them, and they were fun. incredibly uh, generous with me. And um, so that was that was my introduction to television. And then you know, I, I've been I was very fortunate because Norman Lear was an early really? mentor because I was part of a pilot program uh, that attracted playwrights to uh, that gave us a little bit of money in the eighties, and on the basis of our plays. And, um, and, you know, I was told to go off and write a TV pilot. Wow. And of was, your choice, it, of your Yes. Idea. And it was for Norman Lear's Embassy Television, E-M-B-A-S-S, uh-huh. not NBC. Right. Um, and 
And also in television, I worked for Charles Shire and Nancy Myers, and I learned right. a lot from them. There's a lot of comedy people. I yes. Wouldn't have, I didn't yeah. realize that. You were a real comedy writer when you were starting out. I was never a comedy writer. <laughs> but you're working for Norman Lear, and you're working for the I, no, I Mirror know, and Stiller. No, I, I I could never I, – I, I can't tell a joke. <laughs> I Honestly, I really can't. I can write funny – people who are funny – but I am not a comedy writer. It just it just happened that way. And were these parodies uh, for HBO? So they weren't like a, a joke a second. They were sort of um, not laugh out loud. They were just sort of clever, satirical. No, they were really pretty Borscht Belt, actually. Okay. Oh, they were. Yeah, they they really were. Interesting. How'd the pilot uh, for Norman Lear go? Um, you know, I went through a couple of drafts. It was something called Danny which was about uh, single people in New York. And this was a couple of years before Seinfeld. And, but it was sort of that kind of, you know, uh, gal, buddy, and two guys. Uh-huh. And was Norman helpful with feedback? Uh, uh, yeah. I hear he's just the sweetest guy. He was like Rob Reiner's mentor, too, yeah. just tells great stories about how sweet and helpful. No, he, he, and he was. He was great. And, uh, and Nancy and Charles were, were wonderful uh-huh. mentors. Um, right. Something that I learned from Nancy early on was make your script a good read, which was like you know, it was an incredibly eye-opening note. Because <laughs> back then you were just writing. I just it was really just the facts, you know. Right. But uh, make it a good read. Tell the story. Right. And that was such a valuable lesson. Right. I, I worked on a show that they had called Baby Boom. Right. Which was an adaptation of their oh, film. Oh, she made that movie. Or they yeah. made that movie, yeah. too. With Diane right. Keaton and Kate Jackson on the rebound from Charlie's Angels. She played the Diane Keaton She role. did, yeah. Wow. It was very short-lived. Uh, but you were in a writer's room that Nancy and Charles were running? I quit after six days. What? I did. I was. A, they brought me out to be a producer. Uh-huh. Uh, we could do it another <laughs> I, I, hour. We're not going to stop if you quit after six days I from Baby Boom. I, I was having a nervous breakdown, frankly. Really? Yeah. You would just you would move to L.A. You'd I moved, moved from to L.A. York. My wife was uh, was doing her residency at Bellevue in New York. Uh, I thought if I'm ever going to do this TV thing, I should do it now. Right. And Nancy Myers, I mean, she's at this point she's made Private Benjamin. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. She's a big movie. Yeah, she and Charles were still together uh-huh. as a as a writing team and uh-huh. a couple. And there's Baby Boom is like a big name because the the movie was I think it was a hit, right? I mean, it, it was, was an and it was for NBC uh-huh. and uh, you know Brandon Tartikoff I think really? was a big proponent of it, and they brought me out. Um, uh, I had met them through. Um, they read my early plays, you know, just that, that were making the rounds. Uh-huh. And, uh, so they said, come out, be a producer. That's right. Right, Baby Boom? It's a feminist, you know, of the moment kind of show. And it was not a sitcom. Uh-huh. It was a half-hour comedy that was not didn't rely on jokes. Was there not an in-studio audience? No. It was a single-camera show. Wow. Yeah. It was. Wow, that's yeah. early for that. Yeah, um, and, and, and the, the young Susie Essman was in it. And, really? From Curb? Yeah, and, uh, and Joy Behar was in it. Wow. Um, and um, and it, was, it, was a, it was really a learning experience, but I just was not equipped to be a producer. I, I ended up writing four episodes. Not in six days you didn't. No, I... I Aaron, you don't want to hear this. <laughs> Come on, give us a little taste. I sublet this this pool house in Van Nuys wow. for 10 weeks. By yourself while your wife stayed. Yes, exactly. My wife was in New York. And uh, so I had it for 10 weeks. I quit my job after six days. I stayed on in this pool house that smelled of chlorine. <laughs> and I and Charles and Nancy kept sending me scripts to write. Wow. So I wrote four. 
Um, and it was during that time that I had another screenplay that was making the round, something called Public Relations, which was an original screenplay that I did for the late Mark Rosenberg. And Claudia Wilde was attached to direct it, and that was for Universal. And, um, yeah, I mean, we could go on and on. But it, you decided it wasn't for you. <laughs> you came back to join your wife in New York, and you went, you know, full force into place. Yeah, but, I, you know, I continue taking assignments. Yeah. And I've worked with some phenomenal people. Yeah. I've worked with Robin Williams and Spike Lee and Oliver Stone and, yeah. you know, it's, it, and Michael Douglas. Um, and uh, I had, you know, I learned a lot yeah. from these people. Yeah. Wow. Uh, love it. I mean, you're right. We could go on forever. Maybe we'll have you back. I mean, it's easy. You, you live down the street, so there's no Basically. reason you can't come back. Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much for doing this. I, this is a pleasure. Yeah. Thanks. That was great. After we turned off the microphones, Donald and I sat here waiting for a friend and talked a bunch more about some of the disappointments we've had in Hollywood. Um, I got to have him back on and convince him to talk about some of them. It was also good to hear him talk about how strong he thinks playwriting is right now. You know, it's been a while since I've seen a, a new play that I've really dug. So we'll get him back to, to talk about uh, some of the ones that he's really liked. Thanks so much to our producers here at the Yale Broadcast Center. Phil Kearney and Ryan McAvoy. If you dug the show, please do us a favor and subscribe and give it however many stars you think it deserves on iTunes. Uh, it should take about 10 seconds of your time. You can hit me with questions or complaints on Twitter at Aaron D. Tracy or email me at Aaron.Tracy at Yale.edu. See you next week.